0: and welcome to the Needs Improvement Podcast, your regular deep dive into reimagining mental health and well-being in the workplace. I'm your host, Nicholas Whitaker, coach and co-founder of the Changing Work Collective. In every episode, we sit down with thought leaders in organizational health, as well as individuals who've navigated the complexities of mental health, well-being, and belonging in the workplace. Our goal? To dismantle the stigma surrounding mental health, ignite meaningful dialogue, and inspire both employees and leaders to revolutionize the way performance is gauged at work. So if you're eyeing a healthier, happier chapter in your professional life, you're in the right place. Together, let's transform the places we work into the places we would love to be. Let's dive into what needs improvement. Well hey Sarah, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting.
0: Yeah, it's exciting for you to be here. Uh, We've been talking about this interview, I think, for a couple months now or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to digging into it. Before we get into it, though, why don't you tell our viewers a little bit about who you are and what you're up to these days?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So my name is Sarah Devereaux. I live in beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, I worked for Google for about 15 years, and I was primarily in leadership and learning development. Uh, And I did a ton of stuff at Google. I, I think I flipped around like, I don't know, 17 managers in like 15 years or something insane like that. Um, But the culmination of my career there uh, was really in executive development and the Google School for Leaders. So my final role um, was as the head of executive development programs. And that was where I really sort of got this bug Uh, For facilitating and designing programs, particularly around topics like complexity, uh, innovation, design thinking, systems thinking, well-being, resilience, all kinds of good stuff uh, related to being an exceptional leader. So I left Google uh, in January of 2021, uh, and I actually joined a startup um, as the head of business strategy um, and customer success because, one, I'd never been at a startup, um, and two... I felt like I needed to sort of like get back into the business, like, so to speak, for a little while um, before I figured out what my next move was going to be. So same time, because I never do just one thing. uh, I also uh, started digging in on leadership and executive coaching, uh, as well as leadership workshop facilitation. So just left the startup a couple months ago. uh, And I'm, yeah, like really enjoying being a full-time solopreneur.
0: Well, fantastic! Well, welcome to the club. I'm kind of curious your trajectory from like big tech into startup and then into solopreneurship. Like, tell me a little bit about that arc and kind of like what drove that drove that journey for you.
1: Every time somebody asks me about my career trajectory, I feel like I should have this really phenomenal answer about how you know thoughtful and planful I was. Um, I really wasn't. Like, I honestly fell into a lot of the major milestones within my career. I fell into Google because Google came to Michigan shortly after I got out of college. And my mother was like, hey, you should apply for Google. They seem amazing. Uh, And and I had no confidence whatsoever in getting in. uh, And then I ended up staying for 15 years. And even within Google, so many of my career moves and my progression from being the person who answers the phone, and thanks you for calling Google AdWords, um, all the way to head of executive development programs. Like, it was just a lot of me saying yes. It was like, okay, there's another reorg. There's another thing that we're changing. There's another exciting challenge that I have no idea how to do. And I pretty much just said yes. And the same sort of thing happened in the startup. It was a friend of mine um, who was launching this SaaS startup. His name's Aaron Dignan, wrote a book called Brave New Work. Um, We did a little bit of work together at Google. And then I told him I was leaving Google and he's like, come work for me for a little while. What are some of the things you're interested in learning? And I just said, yes. So I think like, honestly, the majority of it has been centered around being up for a challenge, um, being addicted to learning, um, and being curious about trying out stuff that I honestly have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. Um, And having a lot of energy uh, around that. My husband and I are now like actually building our farm here in Michigan. I don't know how to be a farmer. Like, I'm not a farmer. Um, But it's like one of the most exciting things that I've done in the last, I would say, like five, six years, um, because the growth curve and the learning curve for me is so huge.
0: I mean, first of all, I love this like idea of just saying yes, you know, I I think so many people try to have like this really buttoned up narrative of like, here's exactly how things happen and how I landed to where I'm at. But I think in reality, there's so many people are just kind of taking advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. And hopefully you have the right mindset and you have the ability to understand like what you're, you know non-negotiables are like what things are you're actually interested in so when you do say yes to something you find yourself aligned with your values and you find yourself aligned with a purpose maybe um and it sounds to me like through a lot of what you've been working on it's about kind of helping and developing others helping to like change the workplace a little bit i'm kind of curious a little bit from your experience back in the google days 15 years is a good long time you know it sounds like you had a pretty interesting trajectory just even within google you know where you landed with that executive development, some of the training and facilitation that you were working on. Like, what really sparked your interest around that, and like, what was your experience like through that?
1: I think that when before I took on the executive development role, I was running a program called G to G, which was Googlers to Googlers. I think you were, I think you were a part of G to G. I was, yeah, I yeah, a facilitator. Yeah. Um, and it was just, I always like to talk about G to G. It was like the crowning jewel on my Google career because we took it from a couple hundred folks facilitating sales training, mostly in Dublin and Mountain View, and we scaled it to almost 12,000 Googlers teaching um, as part of this like infinitely scalable system across over a hundred offices. You know, at one point, you know, Google's uh, uh, chief people officer, Laszlo Bock back in the day, um, talked about two things that defined Googliness, TGIF and G2G. And I would say that like, that was certainly my experience. Like people just selflessly volunteering their time to help each other. And how could you do that and create a system that could provide that level of development and support at, at scale. But the thing was, is that I did it. Like we created this amazing, infinitely scalable system. And then I came back from my first maternity leave and I was just like, okay, I can keep running it, you know, or, I can go to the place where I have zero experience within the L&D world. And sort of the last frontier was executive development. I had done learning evaluation. I had done, you know, budgeting and vendor management. um, I had done design and curriculum, you know, development. And I had done a lot of facilitation and I'd done a lot of community building, but I hadn't done anything with executives. So I think the thing that sparked it for me was like it was the most unknown thing and then my first introduction to it was complexity and systems thinking. And I was just so obsessed with this. I'm like, there are complex systems everywhere. This is literally the whole problem with every single thing in our world. We are trying to solve complex problems with complicated or simple solutions, we are misdiagnosing the problem. And that just like blew my mind and opened this whole new realm. Um, of of executive and leadership development.
0: That's really, really cool. And I mean, to imagine too, at a company the size of Google, there must be so much opportunity to kind of support leaders and their development and support teams that they're being led by as well. And I'm kind of curious, like just some of your thoughts around like, what did you notice? And like, what were some of the challenges that you were running into during that period of time?
1: I think the biggest thing was that Google really understood that the world was about to fundamentally shift. Um, You know, I'm not shy about saying the things that I think Google has gotten wrong, you know, over the last several years. Um, I'm happy to talk about all that stuff. But I think the thing that they really got right um, was their leadership development philosophy was very much rooted in this idea that the world was shifting faster than ever before and that we needed leaders who could see beyond what was going to happen next, who could see around the corner and who were really committed and willing to develop themselves in areas that are, you know, typically extremely uncomfortable for people. So this whole concept of VUCA, right? Mm -hmm. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Google was one of the first major companies to talk about the impact of an increasingly VUCA world, Um, on leadership and on the way that we make decisions uh, within an organization. And a lot of our leadership development philosophy was really centered around this. And so helping people to understand that the playbook that you've used before isn't going to work, it's not that it's a bad playbook, it's not that you're bad at executing the playbook, it's that the rules of the game have fundamentally shifted. We're not even playing the same game. It's not even that, you know, there's a whole new set of rules to professional football and, and you have to learn them, it's that we are now playing croquet. Like, so you have to learn how to do that instead. I think that helping people to understand that the things that they've relied on up until this point are no longer gonna serve them. Um, there's a whole new set of skills that are a hell of a lot harder to learn. Um, and one of them is that you need to start getting very comfortable with your team saying that you don't know and being vulnerable and being honest and being transparent. Because if you're not, it is easier than ever for people to see right through you. And the biggest threat in an uncertain environment is low trust and low psychological safety among teams. So if you can't cultivate that, you're not gonna be able to create the kind of agility that's necessary to respond to kind of those extrinsic macro environmental shifts.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I imagine too, like with COVID and the pandemic and all these other massive shifts that had happened—remote work, hybrid work, return to office—those probably just added all these additional complexities on top of all of that. And I'm kind of curious, from your perspective, like how prepared do you feel like organizations were to meet the moment of those shifts that we just kind of were talking about there?
1: You know, that's—I'm not really sure how to answer that because I think that people generally knew in theory that something tectonic was about to happen in terms of new ways of working and in terms of like how work was going to shift. Now, did they think it would be a global pandemic um, that would catapult us into it other than Bill Gates? Like, I'm not sure anybody really anticipated that. Right. But I do think that people were like cognitively prepared. Mm mm-hmm. I'm not sure that they were actually emotionally prepared. And I think that when push came to shove, you know, and, and things hit the fan, that people were caught off guard and finding themselves more comfortable jumping back to their, their previous, you know, sort of ways of operating.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. You know, and I noticed this on all levels, too. I think both with individual contributors and managers, as well as executive leadership, there was this attempt for a couple of years there where I was like, mental health is really important. This is something we really care about. We're doubling down on it. Uh, well-being more more generally. And then suddenly these words like resilience came into play. And like that became like the the term de jour. Uh, and there was a lot of effort that was being put in, I think, to help people adjust and adapt to the change. And it seemed to me like leaders in particular were finding it very difficult, particularly middle managers where they're both being kind of pulled in two different directions. Um, and I wonder like your from your experience, like it, was that something also that you noticed was like there was different kind of levels of aptitude and lo- different levels of of skill in applying some of these things, depending on which kind of category you were in.
1: So yes, um, although I would say that it's not so much a gap in skill, like based on different levels. Like what I noticed was a gap in confidence, um, depending on the system that that leader was operating in. So if you, if you think about uh, leaders, you know, operating in a really transparent, like psychologically safe, you know, trust-based system instead of a control-based system, uh, regardless of their skill, right? Like they're probably going to be able to adapt to uncertain circumstances and and situations a lot more easily because they're able to ask questions um, and not fear, you know, judgment, you know, or or repercussions from those those questions, retaliation. Um, they're able to say, like, I don't know, I'm struggling, um, and know that there's a supportive system behind them. Now, for leaders, again, regardless of level. Um, that are in systems of control um, and systems that are more focused on blame and shame um, than they are on learning and development and and compassion and care, um, then they're not going to be able to adapt as quickly to changing circumstances because they don't have the confidence that the system is going to stand behind them. One of the things that I noticed in in teaching executive programs at Google that was actually really surprising was that there was such a wide gap between executive leaders on um, the ones who like, really came with their entire, you know, selves and their whole like beings, and they were super transparent, um, and they were feeling like, yes. I can leave this program and I have the confidence and the skills and the abilities to be able to go back to my team and make positive change. And the people that walked in um, and also walked out feeling defeated and that they didn't have that level of confidence that they could actually do something um, within their organizations to positively influence change. And those were the people that were operating within the most toxic teams within Google. Um, And you watched it and you're like, they just were trying to like not get in trouble. You know, it was a permission-based culture instead of being a constraint-based culture. You need constraints. I'm a big fan of trust-based systems, but you can't have chaos. You have to have constraints within a healthy organization, but they need to be crafted as if you are creating them for well-intentioned, smart people who you trust not creating a laundry list of do's and don'ts.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah. And there's two words that just kind of stand out to me as you're going through this, you know, this idea of trust and this idea of confidence. And I think those are really interesting elements that kind of work either with or against one another. And I wonder if there is a, a, tr- a trend or a thread that you were able to notice of, you know, we have Project Aristotle, you know, uh, Project Oxygen, all these like really amazing research projects that kind of talk about what makes for healthy teams, what makes for healthy leadership. And you would think at a company like Google that in many ways was kind of the the originator of some of this research that all teams would be healthy and all teams would be amazing. I'm kind of curious, like your perspective of like, what what made for toxic teams? What made for teams where a leader wasn't able to feel secure or didn't have that kind of trust?
1: Fear. Um, I think that leaders who felt insecure, who felt like they weren't supported, um, were, were not capable um, of creating supportive environments for their teams um, further down further down the line. Um, and honestly, I noticed a lot of leaders who were scared of disrupting the ship. You know, there's, I honestly think that Google tried, like, for a really long time um, to do a lot of things right. I really do think that they were well-intentioned um, in the vast majority of, like, decisions that were made. The thing that I think got a little bit tricky uh, was the way in which they sort of set up the system so that your identity was so closely tied to your role and to being a Googler and to your job.
0: So we're talking about, a little bit about fear. And, you know, I think you highlighted something that's really, really key here where, you know, there's, there's best intentions. And I agree. You know, I think for the most part, like I had been at Google for 13 years. I started back in 2010. So our, our time kind of overlapped a little bit and somehow it also didn't. Um, but, you know, I, I saw like for several years, you know, from 2010 to say like 2015 or so, it seemed like there was a lot of attention on culture and really kind of cultivating this sense of what it meant to be googly. And that was actually something that was actually thrown around quite a bit as like googliness or being a Googler. Uh, even the way that we called ourselves was not, oh, I'm an employee of Google. I'm a Googler. And, you know, I think a lot of folks that I've talked to that have either left the company or who have been laid off, less in like leadership positions, more like individual contributor, maybe middle management roles, that identity piece was actually the hardest thing for them to let go of when they moved on to something else. And I, I wonder about that a little bit, you know, because we talk about creating psychologically safe teams, we talk about creating environments of trust. Like where does it, where does that come into play when you start to have an environment that's kind of behaving almost like a family in the way that they talk about themselves or if there's these monikers that are being put on uh, of of ways of being like is that a helpful thing does that help make more tight teams or is that in the long run something that's actually more of a detriment
1: i mean i think i think both things are true i think that it can create camaraderie and it can create a feeling um of of belonging and of connection um, and I think it can also create really unhealthy tribalism. And I think it can also create um, really unhealthy proxies um, for things like love um, and loyalty um, and compassion um, when those things are not necessarily top business priorities. So i've I've said this before on podcasts, but like, I think that one, Google is not the only one like that does this, right? Like there's a lot of companies out there um, that were sort of part of this early 2000s, you know, Internet and uh, and technology company like rebirth, like after the dot com fiasco um, that were trying to create these environments where people could come and gather and just get work done. And we need to make it as easy as possible for you to get work done. So we're going to have onsite laundry and we're going to have doctors and therapists, and we're going to have all your food done for you. And we're going to do all this stuff because we just need to keep moving um, and keep this train, you know, at high speed. And I think that that's all again, like well-intentioned, but the unfortunate consequence is that it? Then starts replacing community systems that people need with work, and at the end of the day, like at least in the United States, you are an at will employee, and that community can boot you out the door for any reason, um, and and without notice. And so, I do think that replacing families and replacing, um, you know, maybe neighborhood communities, like. I am a culprit of this. The number of Googlers I knew in a location versus the number of like my neighbors that I knew, that percentage was really lopsided. You know, it starts replacing church, you know, or whatever other, you know, sort of spiritual or, um, you know, uh, uh, volunteer organizations that you might, you know, belong to. So I do think that it's detrimental in that you say that you care And you say that we're a family, but then from a legal perspective, you know, you're still an at-will employee who can be shown the door at any time. And so when that does happen, I think that the mental health impact that I've noticed is significantly outsized um, compared to if if we're just honest about the fact that this is an employee-employer relationship, I work here, um, and, and we do not love each other. Like, and that's okay. Like, that's fine. I am I am doing a service. You are paying me money in order for me to do that. Um, and I appreciate it and you appreciate me. And that's great. But it, that's that's very different um, than a familial relationship.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I wonder too, if that ties in at all with that, that kind of fundamental insecurity that some leaders have, you know, because if you're interjecting and saying, oh, we need to be a tight knit family. We have these certain types of ways of being, to me, that, it sounds like inclusion, but almost to me, it almost sounds like the, the beginnings of something opposite to that, where it's, you know, if you don't fit into this rigid little box and if you don't lead in these particular ways, then there's repercussions to that in some way. And I, and I wonder a little bit, you know, when we talk about insecure leadership, you know, what are the kind of underpinnings of that? You know, so what what does make for a secure leader and, and how do we kind of cultivate that in these organizations?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the things that I've noticed are people who have a groundedness in like what they stand for um, and why. Um, Because it can be, especially if you start out, you know, kind of early on in your career um, in a company that places a lot of value on fitting a particular cultural mode, um, then I think that it can feel very like, almost like stripping, you know, of who you are. And that creates insecurity, right? Like if you can't show up in an honest and authentic way, then that's going to cause um, some insecurity in the way that you manage your team because you're constantly going to be second guessing, you know, your judgment, you know, whether you're making a wise decision. I had a manager once who told me um, that he questioned my judgment um, because I pretty consistently worked from home between one and two days a week. I think that when you are feeling that pressure to show up in a certain way that maybe isn't uh, congruent to the identity that you've built for yourself outside of the company, then it can make you feel really insecure inside of the company. I definitely struggled with that. Like in my early, you know, sort of years of leading and managing at Google. And then I sort of like mastered the ancient art of not giving a shit. And I was like, okay, like this is not working. Like I just need to be me um, in order to, you know, in order to do my job and serve my team in the best possible way that I can. And I'm positive that I left more than one promotion on the table um, because I didn't look the way that I didn't sound the way um, that everybody wanted me to. So I think like authenticity and like a groundedness in who you are, your principles, your personal values and what you stand for. And honestly, like what you're willing to compromise on and what you're not. You know, like I was never willing to treat my team like children. Um, Like if a reorg was coming, if a budget cut was coming, if layoffs were coming, like I was honest about what was going on. And so I think that if you are able to identify those non-negotiables, like here's where I'm willing to make a compromise based on what the organization expects from me as a leader, and here's where I'm not, that helps you to build a leadership identity that you can stand behind and be proud of. And I think that leads to secure leaders versus people who are trying to be something they're not.
0: Yeah. And I imagine that same behavior is probably modeled all the way down too. So if you have an insecure leader who's modeling insecure leadership, the reports of that leader are likely also going to feel a little insecure and not feeling like they can be their full selves or be their authentic, authentic selves at work.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to say the right stuff. You have to show up perfectly, show up your best, right? Like that was always one of the lines. Like, you know, I really want to talk about how you showed up in that meeting. It's like, well, my kid was up for six hours last night and I got two and a half hours of sleep. So yeah, I was a little pissy. Like, sorry about that. Like I've apologized. We're moving forward. Hey, I wasn't at my best yesterday, but you know what? It was still gonna show up on my performance review You know, three months later. Like that belief and that, that example, more so than a belief, but an example, a reinforced belief, right? That you couldn't make a misstep because if you screwed up and you said you were sorry, if you apologize and kind of learned from it and move forward, even if you handled it incredibly well, the threat that one misstep could show up three, six, nine months later on a performance review, and decrease your bonus. As a result, like that starts to turn into very real consequences for people, um, and it starts to create a culture of fear um, and and risk averseness. Right, like people don't want to take a chance because they're so worried about getting dinged, uh, you know, come performance time
0: yeah and you even mentioned that a little bit too, you know this idea of like not wanting to to disrupt the ship not the status quo needs to be maintained in a certain way, and I imagine too, for like insecure leaders, like having that status quo be consistent is very important because that creates a certain sense of stability and a certain consistency that can be relied upon in in exchange for or instead of having that inner security and that inner kind of fortitude,
1: oh yeah leaders who are operating from a place of insecurity and fear um, are very averse to change. Um, They don't want the rules to change because they know the rules. They know how to play within the rules. um, And if there are new rules, then that means that they have to recreate their leadership identity because their leadership identity isn't based in something that is authentic to who they are and the values that they hold, so I think that that's I think that's spot on, um, and I also I also think that it tends to create this dynamic where team members are not paying as much attention to like the signals in the system that might be telling them that we need to change course. And if you think about the world of technology right now, we're changing course like all the time. Like stuff is happening um, at just lightning speed. We talked about things happening at lightning speed five years ago. There's nothing compared to what has happened uh, in 2023. And I think everybody was caught off guard, you know, when ChatGPT kind of took everything by storm. And I keep rolling around in my head, like, why? It felt like everybody was playing catch up. It felt like everyone was caught off guard and we were all trying to to catch up in the race. And we have some of the smartest, most perceptive, like phenomenal people working at these companies. How was it that we were all caught off guard? And my, my mind always goes back to leadership and leadership dynamics. Like what is it about the way that leaders are leading that made it so that they didn't see what was about to happen.
0: Yeah. And imagine too, like when you're in this scarcity mindset or in a, def- a defensive posture, like it's really hard in that threat environment to be looking forward and to be in visionary, you know, or to like lead someone towards some future possibility when all you're really focused on is like trying to keep the status quo, the status quo.
1: Cause what if you're wrong? Quo. Yeah. What if you're wrong? What if you've got this, phenomenal vision for the future. And you're wrong. Yeah, If you're within a system that doesn't prize um, experimentation and risk taking in the name of innovative exponential progress, then you're not going to take that shot. And especially, you know, if those golden handcuffs like are really tight, like if you're getting paid, you know, some of these absolutely astronomical compensation packages like you're not gonna risk that um, on something that might be wrong even if you are seeing signals in the system that are telling you we need to move this direction you're gonna be you're gonna be pretty safe about it um, and I think we've seen that you know with a lot of technology companies right now like you know I think that uh, meta has certainly, you know, shown um, that they have become less risk tolerant um, than they were um, as they've grown and as they've gotten really, uh, you know, really diversified um, in the types of services and products that they offer. I think Google, you know, in particular. um, But you really look at like companies like Microsoft, who like 10 years ago, this was the insult that like all the cool companies in Silicon Valley were throwing at Microsoft. And now Microsoft is like kicking everybody's ass and like being really forward thinking and they've swung back in the other direction. Um, So it's really phenomenal to watch like that cultural and leadership progression. And like that moment of realization of like, we've gone too far, we're being too safe. And I'm really curious to see Where, like, the big, innovative, risky players of 10 years ago, who I think have gotten really safe, I'm interested to see where their moment happens. Like, what's going to push them to be that innovative maverick again? Um, And I don't know. I have hope.
0: I do too. You know, I think there's opportunity here. You know, and I think part of it too is is something you touched on very briefly is like this idea of like performance reviews uh, or performance evaluation. And like, what are the incentives that are, being signaled to employees within an organization based off of their, the way the performance reviews are managed. I'm kind of curious if you have any thoughts about that and like maybe how that was impacting some of that ways of being uh, that we were just talking about.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, again, sort of like really well-intentioned that ended up with bad unintended consequences, right? Performance reviews. Um, I have publicly talked about performance reviews many times. Um, I am really against them. Um, I think that they tend to breed a couple of different things. So one, if you are basing a lot of performance ratings off of peer feedback um, or off of, uh, you know, sort of calibration sessions, you know, where a lot of managers are all getting together uh, and talking about individual people, that can feel very like popularity contests and can feel like, well, I better not piss anyone off. Like I better not upset anyone because the measure by which I am being judged and thus by which I am being compensated is so subjective. And we all know that we are emotional creatures, right? So if someone with power is carrying a negative emotional uh, perception of me, then that puts me at risk you know, come performance review season. Uh, Also, Google and a lot of, I know a lot of tech companies follow suit. um, The performance review process is very much based on what did you do? So it was extremely individual. So like, oh, I get what your team did. That's great. Okay. And team is important. Collaboration, super important. We want you collaborating. Absolutely. But what did you do exactly by yourself? Like what was that individual contribution that you created, because otherwise it's hard to distinguish you and make sure that we all end up on the right quota curve. Uh, It's hard to distinguish you from the other people on the team uh, and the other people, you know, in the organization. So I also think that it bred this unintended consequence of individualism and like almost heroism, because you wanted to like go for the flashy project, right? You didn't want to go for like the long range project that was gonna take three years before you got any sort of uh, tangible outcome out of it. You wanted to go for the flashy project that was gonna show visibility um, to the right people in leadership by the time your performance, you know, your promotion package in particular um, was up for review. And I heard that all the time, that people were timing the projects that they would accept based on when promos were due and how close they thought they were to a promo. So a lot of people were doing projects that in some cases were actually like bad projects, but they were gonna look really good for those first six to nine months. And so they'd go after it, they'd stick with it, even if the project you know, showed its true colors within the first couple of months, that, hey, we should probably step away from this. They would stick with it so that they didn't risk their promotion. So when you you tie people's compensation to a system like that, you are essentially putting them into lizard brain mode. Like you're encouraging amygdala hijack, right? Because you're saying you have to succeed. You are being judged against everybody else. And if you don't, hit all the right boxes on these four completely separate and sometimes conflicting pieces of, you know, criteria, uh, then then your bank account um, is going to take a hit. And so when your livelihood is threatened, that ties into that whole survival mechanism and you end up in fight, flight, or freeze. um, and, And that's how you start making decisions. And when we make decisions, from a place of, of fear and panic um, and fear of judgment um, in particular, we start making really bad decisions. Like all sorts of things happen like neurologically that make it worse for us to make decisions when we are in a heightened emotional state like fear.
0: things that comes up for me with that, I mean, first of all, I've had, I've had personal experience with what you're actually sharing. I've had leaders tell me like, well, you got a, a lower performance review this time around. Don't take it personally. And to me, that was what was really confusing to me. I was like, there's nothing about this that isn't personal because yeah. the entire system is designed to make it personal. Um, and my question was always like, well, what was the environment that that person was in that was causing them to not be able to perform at a high level? It's very rarely an isolated thing where it's just this one individual's way of working, yeah. particularly if they've been at the company for a long period of time. Um, it's usually the environment that they're in. And there's usually a numerous different factions. You know, you mentioned earlier this idea of like, well, yeah, you know, like I have personal things going on in my personal life. I'm sorry I didn't show up at like perfectly in this one instance. And yet then those things get brought back up from a place of, you know, in some cases, you know, recency bias of like, oh, yeah, so-and-so was kind of snippy in that meeting a couple of weeks ago. That means he isn't a team player, isn't really able to like you know help others collaboratively. And and I I wonder if there's like a lot of conversation going on about the environment and around, you know, what allows for individuals to be able to be successful.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think like the the thing you hit on there that that sparked for me um is hey, you got a lower rating and don't take it personally. Would you say that, you know, thinking back just to that moment for you, would you say that the expectations were clear about how you were to be successful during that performance cycle?
0: No, absolutely not. And actually, part of the feedback that I got right around during that same cycle was I, I was requiring too much support and coaching from my leadership and my colleagues. And in my expression, in my, in my experience, it was I had come into a new team that was very dysfunctional, had gone through many different reorgs. And it was not clear how to be successful. So the only way to be clear was to ask the folks that had been there for 10 years. But then that shows up on performance reviews later as not being enough of like a self-starter or not being autonomous enough.
1: Right. That's really one of the things that I have seen um, with insecure leaders is that when they're not sure how to set expectations, they, they tend to then put it on the team member to be like, oh, well, you should have known what to do. You should have known how to structure your time and what all of the deliverables should have looked. You're senior enough um, to have been doing all of that on your own. Never mind that you asked me, you know, to clarify expectations, deliverables, you know, all that good stuff ahead of time. And I couldn't. And what's more, I couldn't say that I didn't know. And I think that's what I see most often is that insecure leaders, when they're asked, to clarify expectations will if they don't know what the expectations are they won't they won't say they don't know a, a more secure leader will say you know what i am honestly not sure it's a giant cluster around here lately and i don't know what success looks like for you over the next 6 months let's take an hour and really sit down together and draft out like hey what are the things that we're pretty sure are going to add value over the next six months? What are the things that we're less sure about um, and that we might need to change halfway through? And what are the things and the goals um, that are, that are you know, we're taking a flyer on it. Like, we're going to try it. And if it works, it's going to be a massive home run. And if it doesn't, it's, you know, no big deal. We tried something. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like, can you be honest as a leader that you're not sure And work with your employees to co-create the conditions for success.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I imagine too, like, I spent a lot of time doing mindfulness uh, instruction at Google as part of their GPOS program. Also the G2G work, a lot of the work that I did there was around like giving and receiving feedback, like having difficult conversations, like, finding ways to be compassionate and curious with one another at, at, at this core. And to me, that sounds like that's essentially an antidote to a lot of what we're talking about here. Can you as a leader have compassion for yourself and for your teams? And can you convey a culture that, that really encourages that type of curiosity and compassion? They say it in terms of like, you know, assume good intent. But I think it, there's a lot more to it than that. And I kind of I'm curious, like your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I love this question because I really hate feedback. I think feedback in the way that we have constructed it. Um, and honestly, like the way that it's often talked about and even taught um, in a corporate setting just sucks. Like it's this thing where like you gear somebody up and you're like, okay, I've got some feedback for you. So one You're setting the stage for like, hey, this is going to be like a thing. You never say, hey, I've got some feedback for you. And it's just like a string of compliments. That's not it. You send it, you know, you you when you've got positive things to say, you're like, hey, I just wanted to share some gratitude, you know, or hey, I'm really excited about a few things that you're working on right now. And I just want to say like, this is awesome. You're doing such a great job. You never start a conversation like that with, I've got some feedback for you. So one, we gear people up in the way that we lead them into feedback conversations to think that it's going to be something bad. And then we sandwich it between like inauthentic pieces of positive feedback when really everybody knows that there's a problem and we want to talk about it. We have an opinion about what the problem is and we have an opinion about how to fix it. That's typically, you know, what's going to happen. And what I think we should be doing Instead of the classic, like, I give feedback, you receive feedback, and there is a correct and proper way um, to do both sides of that equation. I'm really an advocate for having compassionate, curious conversations. Mm. When I work with leaders, when I work with my coaching clients, I will often say to them, when you have feedback for somebody, how long do you talk before you invite them to talk? Typically, some leaders are like, oh, usually just not long, like seven, eight, 10 minutes, something like that. And then I I share my perspective. I go through, like, you know, uh, situation behavior impact or some sort of, you know, model like that. And then I invite them to, you know, respond. I said, okay. So that's like 20 times longer than you should be talking. So I tend to encourage people to share how they're feeling first and foremost. So, you know, for example, like, hey, Nicholas I'm feeling really nervous and I'm feeling nervous because I don't know if I'm going to have a ton of valuable insightful things to share in your podcast and I'm the first person that you're interviewing and I I want to do well for you and I'm freaked out so I'm just curious how are you feeling how are you feeling about having me on and and what sh- where should we go from here like That takes like 20 seconds. So I tend to recommend that folks share how they're feeling, share what is causing them or why they believe they are feeling that way, and then ask for something, make a request. And nine times out of 10, I recommend that people ask how the other person is feeling. Like, how are you feeling about our first conversation together? And then it invites this moment of like, I feel this way, you feel that way. And so we're connecting on an emotional level instead of only connecting cognitively. Um, And that not only, you know, creates a better opening for conversation, but it also creates a better opening for compassionate conversation because we're starting with emotions instead of starting with observation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually think that's really powerful.
0: No, it definitely sounds powerful. You know, and to me, it, it immediately makes me think of just like relationships in general, I mean, using I statements, you know, talking about your feelings, not like pointing your finger at somebody of like the behavior or the action. It's more like, here's the impact that that has on me. And I think as a, as a leader coming into a conversation and saying, here's how I'm feeling, it creates more of a multidimensional view of that person as a person, as opposed to a, a transaction that needs to occur. And I mean, it's the same thing that happens in just like romantic relationships. Like if you can come to that as a participant in something bigger, you know, where we're both trying to create this thing together. How do we both create that in a way that makes the, makes makes the most sense? Including feelings, including thoughts, including other components of that is really important, as opposed to it just being like, "I need to deliver this piece of information."
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and I often use like employees who have been doing great um, and who are suddenly not doing so great um, as an example. You know, in this model, so saying like, "Hey, I'm feeling really worried. I've noticed that you haven't been, you know, kind of yourself lately. Here are the things that I've noticed, um, just very quickly. Um, but I don't, I don't want to assume anything here. I wanted to see how are you doing. Like, this is just my perception. Like, how are things going for you right now? Do you, do you feel?" Like you're able to like fully engage with work or, or what's been your experience, you know, over the last couple of months. But again, getting it to that moment of asking them to share their experience really like ideally in less than two minutes.
0: Mm -hmm. And that requires so much trust too, I think in that, in that dynamic, because, you know, I know just even from my own personal experience in times where I have struggled it was usually because there was some extrinsic thing that was occurring in my life. It wasn't because like, I just wasn't into the work anymore or I didn't want to do well. It was I was compromised in some way. And my God, like if I would have had somebody ask me, like, hey, I noticed these things, how are you? Or what do you need in order to be able to do better? Or not even do better, but like, what do you need in order to feel better about this experience? Um, what a difference that would have made. But I know yeah. just from my experience, I didn't feel even safe if someone would have asked me in that environment, hey, are you okay? Probably wouldn't have felt safe to say that because I would have been worried if that would have showed up on a performance review later down the road. So this talks, in my mind, this, this, this talks a lot about psychological safety and creating those like human compassionate interactions with each other so that there is that kind of foundation of psychological safety where if you are struggling with mental health or neurodiversity or anything along those lines, you're able to really speak about that without feeling that it's going to somehow come back and bite you in the ass later on.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think that the biggest obstacle um, to learning um, and, and development and growth within organizations is judgment. Like the more that we judge each other, and the more that we judge ourselves, the less likely and the less comfortable we are with pushing ourselves to learn and to grow and to change. And I think that, you know, conversations um, and, and curious conversations um, are a big way of combating that. Because if you can just share, hey, my perspective has been that you've seemed a little disengaged to me. Like, not that you are disengaged, like, right? Because that's a judgment. I'm telling you what you are, um, which is honestly none of my business. Um, And I am not qualified to make that assessment. But my perspective from where I sit, which is one unique vantage point and is not the only perspective in town, like, is that it seems like you might be a little disengaged. And here's what, here are some of the things I've noticed that are leading me to that perception. Um, I've even had conversations with folks before where I've been sharing feedback like that. And then I've said, but I could be, I mean, I could absolutely be wrong here. Like, and I would just love to hear from you. How are you doing? Like, this is what I'm noticing, but how are you doing and what are you noticing? Um, And how can I help? And if somebody responds back with, no, I'm totally good. I'm I'm absolutely fine. Like having the courage as a leader to be able to say, okay, I believe you. Um, If that ever changes or if you need me um, and you need my support um, in a different way uh, in the next little bit, like in the future, whatever, like, just let me know. Like, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm I'm not trying to catch you. Like, I'm not trying to judge. I'm not trying to catch. I'm not trying to accuse. I genuinely want to make sure you're okay. Um, And here are a few things that I'd like us to agree to going forward. You know, if you are seeing a performance gap, Um, and I want to check in on it in a couple of months and see how it's going. So you can ask for things. You know, as a leader, I think that a lot of people think like if you're going to ask questions and if you're going to trust, then you have to. Just let everybody do whatever they want. And you can't ask for anything. You can make requests and you can reach agreement about the things that you're asking about. And you can check in later at an agreed upon cadence. There's a very big difference between autonomy and abandonment. You don't have to like totally exit the picture as a manager or a leader in order to give someone autonomy, but you need to agree on what that autonomy looks like and where you will be supporting them um, and checking in along the way.
0: Mm, mm. I feel like these are just like little pearls of wisdom for leaders that everyone should really be listening to. Cause to me, it really just comes down to, and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but being, self-compassionate and being compassionate with others and really putting that into practice and being thoughtful about how you're leveraging language and how you're leveraging that power differential to make sure that you're creating an environment where people can feel as safe as possible so that if they are struggling or if they are in need of something, that they can express those needs in a way that they feel like can be met.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly have not always done everything right, like far from it. Like I have made so many leadership mistakes where literally I have been in the moment and going, I know better than this Mm -hmm. and I'm still doing it. it. But nine times out of 10, if I really sit back and examine why I was doing what I was doing, it was out of fear. And it was out of fear of me being judged based on the performance of my people.
0: Yeah,
1: And so There is a place, you know, you don't have to to like sit there with underperforming team members forever and ever and ever in order to be a compassionate leader. But what you do have to do is have an open and honest conversation that isn't about blame and shame, but is about curiosity and understanding where that person's coming from um, and challenging your own assumptions and your own commitment to being right and being willing to be wrong Um, And to have your assumptions challenged by bringing in that new perspective. So if you're just going to sit there and go, that person's an underperformer and nothing they say and nothing that's happening in their lives and nothing that's happening in the system is going to change my opinion that that person's an underperformer, then then you're never actually going to get to the bottom of what might be going on with that individual. And it might be that they're just disengaged from their job and they don't want to do it anymore. Like that's totally possible. But you have to be open to to there always being another answer um, because the vast majority of the time, there is. There's always more than one answer to any given question.
0: I think that's such an important point to end on because I think just in that last little bit, you know, just for me, really what that speaks into is like not just seeing people as cogs in a system, but really seeing it as a system and how these different things interact with one another. And it's not just you and your work life, it's you and your work life within the context of all of your life and all the various different things that might be impacting that. And if you can stay curious and if you could stay compassionate, you can more easily get to the bottom of that with those individuals. And everybody has a little bit more trust and everyone has a little bit more compassion to just be the vulnerable, imperfect people that we are and hopefully be able to ask for help and move forward. Uh, in some way that's beneficial to everybody, even if that perhaps means that person leaves the team, you know, to find something that's a better fit.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I down-leveled people um, at Google. They had gotten promoted um, and, and they shouldn't have. And it wasn't their fault. You know, like they had a, you know, a manager who was just overrating everybody um, and and promoting everyone before they were ready. And then they got re-orged into a different team and they very clearly were not meeting expectations for the level that they had been promoted into. Um, and it didn't mean they were bad for the company. The amount that I had to negotiate with HR in order to get permission to down level someone um, instead of just exiting them from the company um, was crazy. And then that person then moved on. Um, this was like 10 years ago now, like moved on. And I think now is like still at Google, senior director. Doing absolutely amazing, but had to be down leveled from a six to a five, you know, which is you know sort of a senior senior IC role to kind of a mid level IC role, and and it was just the right thing to do at that moment, uh, but how tragic, like that would have been if the only option was to exit them from the company. So there's there's always there's always a different answer to any given question. And I think there's always a different solution to any given problem. Like there's never just one way um, of doing something.
0: Well, Sarah, first of all, in answer to your prior question, I think it's been amazing having you on. And I think it's been amazing having you as a first guest. So thank you for being here. Um, I'm curious if folks want to find your work. You know, I know you do executive coaching and you got a couple other things going on. Where's the best place for people to find you?
1: Yeah, so... Currently, um, you can go to thirdcoastcoaching.com. So Third Coast in homage um, of Lake Michigan um, and all the beauty um, of our five great lakes. Um, So Third Coast Coaching, uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. And very shortly, um, you can find uh, my new venture. Um, at thirdcoastfarms.xyz.
0: We're very much looking forward to hearing more about Third Coast Farms and everything else that you're doing. Well, Sarah, thank you so much and be well. We'll talk to you soon. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode of the Needs Improvement Podcast. If our conversation resonated with you, do us a favor, share this episode with your network. We'll be back next month, diving even deeper into what needs improvement in the modern workplace. Until then, take what you've learned and make your workplace a better place to be. See you soon.